It's really about making the best decision for the most folks, but also making decisions and having essentially fail-safe infrastructure set up, backups set up, so that those of us who are the most prone to you know, negative health impacts if we lose power or to smoke are still taken care of. Hello, and welcome to Life of Fire podcast, the podcast that explores our relationship with wildfire and how we can better coexist with it in the future. I'm your host, Amanda Monti, and this is our first episode of the new year. Uh, The funny thing about this episode is that I recorded it last August, and actually over the next couple of weeks, months maybe, you guys are going to be hearing a lot more episodes that I recorded last summer that I have just not gotten around to editing. So... Thank you for your patience. I hilariously have like seven episodes that I need to edit and upload for you guys. I've just been kind of busy with other work for the last year, really. And so I haven't been able to focus on the podcast as much as I've wanted to. But I have sort of methodically gotten rid of a lot of the other work that I had going on in pursuit of more time to do this podcast, to do more creative work, to do some more writing. So kind of returning to my roots here, and I'm hoping to have more time to work on the podcast over the next few months and get all those episodes up from last summer. Speaking of episodes from last summer, today's guest is Dr. Jessica McCarty, who I spoke to in August. And you can kind of tell that we spoke in August because we spoke a lot about the fires that were happening in Canada and the fire that happened in Lahaina and Hawaii. And Jessica has a lot of experience in both of these areas, and she was able to speak to the sort of fire regimes and fire dynamics in both of these different regions that were deeply impacted by wildfires last summer. So we dug into that. We talked a lot about emergency management more generally, about the realities of evacuating some of these really remote communities, especially like in Canada and the Northwest Territories, as is what happened last summer. We talked about you know, the improvements that we need to make in science communication and the availability of science communication and emergency communication, especially in the response phase of wildfires, you know, making sure that folks have the information that they need to make decisions when wildfires are actively impacting their area. We were able to speak a bit to the strengths and weaknesses of satellites. We talked a bit about fire technology. We talked about what she's hopeful for in the fire technology space. She spoke specifically about predictive modeling for fire, both as a risk and as a tool. So using that predictive modeling from both of those standpoints of recognizing that fire can be a risk and it can be a tool and that we should have predictive modeling that represents and reflects both of those realities. There's so much. We talked about so much. And if I didn't already provide this context, she will also talk about her position. But Jessica is a branch chief in the biospheric sciences branch at NASA's Ames Research Center located in Silicon Valley, California. And she's very smart and she has decades of experience doing this work and especially doing work within the wildfire space. So her insights are really valuable. She has a lot of background to sort of back up everything that we talked about, has a lot of like contextual experience and knowledge to be able to talk about the fires in Canada last summer and the fire in Lahaina and all of these other disparate topics. So I think it's a great episode. I hope you guys enjoy it. We do also have some contributor episodes coming up in the next couple months, which I'm so excited about. Two of them are going to be from the Montana Media Lab, which helped some students in Montana, largely indigenous students, tell some stories about fire in their communities. And so we'll have two episodes from them 
one from two different high schools. Cannot wait to release those. I think those will be releasing in late February, early March, and it'll be all student-told stories about how fire has impacted these two communities in Montana by young Indigenous storytellers. I'm super excited about those episodes. I can't wait to share them with you guys. Some other episodes that we have coming up, John Vallant is going to be on the podcast. He's an author who wrote the book Fire Weather about the 2016 fires up in northern Alberta. And I also spoke with the forest supervisor from the Stanislaw National Forest about some of the prescribed fire initiatives that they have going on. I spoke with some Oregon State University researchers about a paper that they wrote regarding Hispanic labor in the forestry sector and Oh my gosh, we just have so much cool stuff coming up. I can't wait to have the time to get it all out into the world. So yeah, you have a lot of great episodes to look forward to over the next couple months as we get these things edited and published. That's all I have for updates. So let's get into our episode with Jessica. Thanks as always for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Jessica McCarty and I'm the branch chief of the biospheric sciences branch at NASA Ames Research Center, which is NASA in Silicon Valley. My background is mainly in how to use satellite data and data science to better understand where, when, why, and how fires happen, where they're going to burn, and then the impact of those fires, both on the landscape, the air quality, the climate, and the I have a personal background in fire, so I always tell people that I grew up on a farm on a mountain in the middle of a national forest, which is true. My family is a private inholder in a national forest in eastern Kentucky, and I grew up both participating in some traditional prescribed burning for land management and then also experiencing wildfires. So by the time I left for graduate school on the East Coast at 21, I had lived through three wildfires. So this is a both kind of a personal and a professional passion. And I do understand the impact of fires both on the environment, on the communities, and also on animals. And while I work mainly with you know NASA satellites and our partner agencies around the world, like our sister space agencies around the world, I do often try to personalize my research so that when I'm talking to just anybody that I meet, that they understand what the satellites can show us, how they can help both individuals and communities and people working in fire, but then also what they can't do so that their expectations are more realistic. So that's me. That's awesome. I actually would love to get that shtick of like how they can help (laughs) and how they can't help and where those limitations are. (laughs) Well, satellites are very good at telling us both what the ground conditions are before fire. So they can tell us, oh, the vegetation or fuels are very dry. They can give us information on both the type of fuels and condition of fuel. So are they dead or alive? Are they still standing? Are they complex? You know, like ladder fuels, which in layman's term is really that there's a lot of branches to the canopy that allow the fire to literally climb up the tree like a person would climb up a ladder. And then, you know, are there a lot of grasses? Satellite data can help us both classify and determine if there are native grasses versus invasive grasses um, or introduced grasses. And sometimes plants are introduced and they're not invasive. And I think that's a really important point. But when plants become invasive, it means they start to outcompete and dominate a landscape. And so the native plant species can't make it anymore, can't thrive. And that usually becomes a problem. And while not all invasive species are fire prone, 
Well, turns out, and most of them are, <laughs> so, especially when they're planted in the, in the wrong places, and that can be a, a real problem. Satellites are also very good at showing us ignition sites, so when a fire starts and how much energy or power. So if folks are thinking about, you know, megawatts or joules, it literally we can tell some physics behind the fire using satellite information. And that gives us then good insight into what is actually being released by the fire. We call that emissions, but we think about, you know, how much carbon is being burned and then how much air pollution is also being burned. So how is this fire impacting global climate change? How much carbon dioxide or CO2 is being released? But also what other atmospheric species or pollutants are being released that are terrible for human public health? as well as for animals. You'll hear me say that a lot, but we don't really talk about the impact of fire on animals quite enough. We do know that biodiverse landscapes are actually the most climate resilient. And so we want to, as much as possible, also try to limit the impacts of fire on animals so that the landscapes that we people are living on are healthy enough to support us in the extreme climate events that we're experiencing. What satellites can't tell us, though, is satellites can't tell you where the fire is going to go. You know, and satellites can't tell you when a fire is going to happen. Satellites are not very good at predicting what human populations will do, what communities will do when a fire arrives. A lot of that is really more about both predictive modeling. We call it geospatial, but think about, you know, all the mapping you can do to understand the impact of fire on transportation, on communities, on energy infrastructure, on food infrastructure on our supply chains. But it's also a lot of social science. There's a big movement both within NASA and then I think just overall in many of our science and operational agencies to understand what type of actions need to occur for our communities to be more resilient. And in order to understand that, there always has to be that human element. How are the people doing? And what can we provide to those communities so they can make better choices, right? And it's really about giving folks the power and knowledge to make their own decisions and not telling them what to do. Satellites are not very good at telling you what your options are, but they're very good at showing you what your options are. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it's hard to comment on the human decision-making in things like Hawaii. I do want to shift towards Hawaii because you mentioned some things that seem kind of relevant there with non-native grasses. And I don't know if that's something that you have done any research on in the past or if you can speak to what your thoughts were as you were seeing that playing out on the news. If you have anything, any relevance to some of the work that you've done in the past, I would love to hear about it. So NASA funded research on the big island of Hawaii and where many of the native plants are, I wouldn't say fire adapted, but they're fire resilient. So they have um, these evolutionary tendencies to withstand extreme temperatures or burning like aerial roots or they have waxy skin. And that's because of the lava flows, right? So the volcanic activity. And so on the islands where there's more recently, you know, volcanic activity, you will find these fire resilient plants. What we mean by fire adapted are plants that need the fire to propagate, right? To reseed themselves. I have worked a bit with some of the leading experts in Hawaii, including some of the folks who are behind the Hawaii Wildfire Management and the Pacific Fire Exchange, which is funded by the Joint Fire Science Program. And, you know, one of the things I, I think 
and the message they're trying to get out, which is, you know, kind of laid bare by the historical land use of Maui, is that, you know, Maui at one point was a lot of sugarcane and pineapple, you know, large commercial operations. And both of those agricultural industries really went out in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and mainly to do because of shifting global markets, trade agreements, things like that. But it left a lot of essentially abandoned lands. And before they were being heavily irrigated, invasive grasses were able to outcompete the native vegetation, which takes a little bit longer to establish. And what that has led to is a lot of grasses that are fire adapted and will quickly burn, things like um, guinea grass. And as anyone who's ever worked in prescribed burning or wildland firefighting will tell you, including myself, is that, you know, a grass fire tends to not be very hot, but ooh, they burn fast, right? And it's very difficult to fight a grass fire. You essentially, you try to let it burn itself out and build fire breaks. You're not necessarily attacking it. And that's kind of the situation that you're having in Maui. And of course, there's other historical reasons why the pineapple and sugarcane, what used to be called plantations. I don't like to use that word. I think we can figure out a better word than that. So we'll call them large-scale commercial agricultural production. That has a lot to do with other historical events and the changing of the hydrological system there too, essentially the drying out of some of the landscapes there. But I think that, you know, a good point to remember is that if you want to care for the land, right, if we want the land to be resilient, that means that the people also need to be taken care of, right? And the people need to have a way to care for the land. There needs to be both kind of the resources to do so, whether that's infrastructure, tools, but also jobs and economic ways for folks to reduce you know, the impacts of fire. That's very topical both in Maui, but in other parts of the Pacific Islands, including all the islands of Hawaii. But it's also kind of a global truth. You know, if we're not good stewards of the land and we do not account for fire, we'll see more large wildfires that can lead to these urban conflagrations, which are, you know, they're very difficult. They're just very, very difficult to control and to fight. And it will take a lot of, I think, both this combination of how can we use technology and data to understand the landscape, but also how can we take care of the community so that they can take care of the landscape? That's probably a question that, you know, as a NASA researcher, no one asks me that question because <laughs> that's not my expertise. But I am always happy to work with and listen to others who have good ideas and who have knowledge about how to promote that. Right. Like I've been rolling that around in my head, something to that effect with Maui and with Kelowna and with Northern California to a certain extent. And then just the history of these sort of urban conflagrations and how it seems like they're building in intensity and in frequency over the last three or four years. It's just like, what is that massive cultural shift? What does it need to look like? And it's ultimately like, like solving all of the other problems of like, capitalism will also contribute to us being able to steward our land more effectively because we'll have more time to, because we'll feel financially and, you know, whatever, we'll feel more secure. I feel like that's ultimately what it comes down to is like ensuring that people feel secure enough that they have time and that they have energy to expend in building resilience in their communities and even being resilient and not having a thousand other things on their plate. That's a long <laughs> random ramble, but it's just something I've been thinking about. Like, what is the solution right now? Like, how can we build resilience at the scale that we need to? 
you know, some lessons that are still being learned and hard questions that are still being asked, for instance, around the Marshall Fire in Boulder, right? Which was also likely a human-caused fire that led to a grass fire that led to urban conflagrations. You know, and here, similarly, as in Maui and Lahaina, many of the homes that were impacted were built very closely together. They had not hardened the landscape. They had not removed the vegetation, the landscaping around them. And, you know, there's that saying that in a wildfire, it's not it's not the forest to set your house on fire. It's your neighbor's house. And that's what we're seeing. And I think in the Marshall Fire, there are questions about, you know, how does Boulder and that part of Colorado, which is going to keep expanding, right? The human population is likely to expand there. I don't know by how much. I don't think people are actually very good at predicting that kind of stuff, as many, many studies will show you. But we at least do have a nice range and envelope of knowing that population there will keep growing by some percentage. It's probably not going to decline for some time. And how you build in a landscape like that that is fire prone will mean taking into account not just the vegetation landscape around you, which of course needs to be managed, but also how to best build and rebuild homes so that they are less likely to burn. And that means that folks need to be invested in being good neighbors. And again, that's not a problem that satellites are going to solve, right? But we can at least help rapidly create the fire risk maps to let communities know the danger they're in so that they can solve those problems together. I do think one of the interesting things about the Marshall Fire in Boulder is that I think that they're still deciding what to do about this as the expansion happens. But should they build more of these dense suburban-like neighborhoods or should they build the more sprawling exurban-like neighborhoods, right, where you can fight the fire better between homes? And both of these have pros and cons. The pros of the densification is that you're using less carbon, right? You're producing less carbon dioxide. You have walkable and likely less carbon-dependent transportation systems. And you also hopefully have more kind of social support within those neighborhoods. And also they're easier than to monitor. So if you're working in the fire agency, it's easier to monitor dense human settlements as opposed to these sprawled human settlements, right? Like any wildland firefighter or burn boss will tell you that. But if you decide that you as an individual want to be able to fight that fire, the more space you have between you and your neighbor, yes, I mean, technically that's better, right? And you can harden that distance. But it also means you're going to use more carbon. You're going to put more CO2 in the atmosphere to live in those landscapes, which means that you're going to contribute more to climate change. So, you know, both of these solutions have risks. None of them are risk-free. And again, those are the kind of hard questions that people have to as a community to think about. Sometimes it's as little as like, I talk to my neighbors wherever I've lived in the US, whether it's been in the Great Lakes region or when I go home to Appalachia or when I'm, you know, out here on the West Coast. I'm always talking to people about landscaping. I know that sounds odd, but, you know, fire comes up in the conversations quite a bit. And I always say to them, like, what are you doing to reduce your fire risk? Right. And many folks still don't know that their landscaping choices, right, are a part of that. So there is some communication, and I would probably say large scale mapping for communication, like literally to educate the public about how they can reduce their own fire risk footprint. 
you know, and that continuing to build communities and homes into the wildland urban interface, into these areas that are prone for fire is not the way forward. Of course, you know, individuals and individual researchers can't control what communities and private individuals do, but it is a good time for all of us to reassess and think about, you know, how do we want to, you know, move forward in this new fire normal, right? Stephen Pine calls it the pyrocene. But I always think about it as, you know, the reason that there's fire on our planet is because there's oxygen. And so planets without oxygen don't have fire. And humans need oxygen to live. There was fire on this planet before there were humans. So there'll be fire on this planet when humans are no longer here. We have to learn to live with fire. It is possibly one of the components of why we have technology and civilization advanced and right, is us learning how to utilize fire and to capture it in some ways. But fire is not a controllable element. Right? I think modern humans and modern communities need to think about how to thrive with fire. Right? It's not going away. The risk is never going to be zero. Right? But how do you manage that risk through some of the choices we make? Yeah, that was spectacular. I hadn't considered that point you just made of like, we have oxygen, we're going to have fire. That's just kind of like, it's as tied up in all of this as anything else. Yeah, that's something I think that is misunderstood. And I think it's just like a shifting baseline problem of like, my grandma has no recollection of fires like we're seeing now when she was my age and probably for her entire life. And so this idea that like what was normal in the 80s is no longer normal is maybe part of that. But I am curious, like you've mentioned technology and I get a lot of emails from folks in the technology space that are kind of proposing these different, just various different AI, et cetera, et cetera, technologies to help with this problem. And I'm curious if you're seeing anything in that space or just really like what sort of technologies can help us solve or deal with or mitigate this problem? Oh, I get asked this a lot too. Let me just say that I'm not going to mention all the technologies because even I don't know all of them and it's quite right. possible they haven't been invented yet. Mm -hmm. Just what gets you excited? <laughs> yeah, what gets me excited? I mean, honestly, one of the things that gets me excited is thinking about how to improve our predictive modeling so that we are showing potential futures based on actual current management strategies and realistic approaches to fire as a risk and as a tool, right? We know, I know I'm preaching to the choir here on this podcast, but we have to be burning more. We have to have more prescribed fire. It's got to be done. And we'll need more cultural burning. We'll just need more fire because we're living in a fire deficit. And I always tell folks that this is more like a, a patchwork quilt right? Like some places in the world have burned too much and some have burned too little. And it's really about, you know, trying to stitch those landscapes together to get, you know, to a more harmonious landscape. And so the technologies that excite me are, have to do more about predictive modeling in order to give communities who have that fire deficit basically the right scenarios so they can choose the right, right actions, right? So that they have a good idea. It's also predictive modeling and perhaps really advanced landscape modeling where prescribed burners can light a digital landscape on fire under different right microclimate wind conditions and really see what the fire will do as opposed to what we have now which is often paper based but to be quite frank you know people who burn a lot you know burn bosses burn crews etc you know private landowners of course indigenous cultural burners 
they have a real good sixth sense about this. They can taste when to burn and not to burn. And so I'm actually really excited about our predictive modeling to reflect that kind of human intuition that is often very helpful to prevent accidents, to prevent prescribed fires from becoming wildfires. I do think there's a lot of growth, and this isn't just because I work at NASA, but there is a lot of growth in Earth observations. I think there's a lot of innovative sensors, both that can be launched in space, but also airborne or UAV that will be helpful in finding ignition sooner so that there are better alerts. I do think that there really isn't enough being done in this kind of smart energy grid, climate slash natural hazard risk space. Uh, I know some folks are working on the smart energy and wildfire risks. I know at UC Santa Barbara and Stanford and others are doing this work. And that's great. And we need to keep that moving forward because we do know that our electrical grid, our energy infrastructure is often both the ignition, but also at risk you know, during these events. And we should be able to both prevent these ignitions from happening, but also to let communities know that actually you're at risk, right? Did you know that your energy grid is putting you at risk? And so that investment can be made to lower that risk. You know, and then finally, I know people talk about this a lot. If it could ever work, being able to improve situational awareness for wildland firefighters, but also rural communities. And let's be quite frank at this point, it's not just rural communities, but all communities for hazards. That's a public communication and an emergency management issue. If you grew up in, and this is before my time, but in the 1970s, what I hear is that everyone had the same emergency broadcast system, right? Because everybody was watching the same television or same radio. And so emergency broadcasts were easier to put out there. No one is doing that. We live in like walled gardens now of different information spaces. So we need to figure out how to send up a firework in the night sky for every garden to be able to see hazard, hazard, what can you do? We absolutely have to think about how to improve that communication space and how to get what can be complex information right? You know, oftentimes when I'm describing satellite data to the public, I'm trying to use clear, plain language that anyone can understand and what it really means to them. And I do find that sometimes researchers are not used to talking to the public, especially when it's a highly anxious time, like a fire risk. So, We need to work on that science communication component and emergency communication component so that communities do feel like they're being alerted when the risk happens. And yeah, I think those are the main technologies that excite me now. I don't actually know how to improve the wildland firefighter situational awareness. I know there's lots of great folks, both in the private and public sector, working on that. I wish them a lot of luck. There's some kind of cellular network slash bandwidth issues, you know, and topography that are always going to be a problem in some cases. But I'm glad that people are working on that hard problem because it's it's needed, right? And just because it seems impossible doesn't mean it is impossible. So that's what I would say. Yeah, that was fantastic. I mean, it, it got me thinking and like, I want to avoid armchair quarterbacking in any capacity, but it just made me think like, in Hawaii or in Maui, like how things could have just been different. And I don't know, I've been thinking about, about maybe not in Maui necessarily, but like anywhere where the fire risk is high, where you're in a drought, where you have red flag conditions and where you have this extreme wind event coming in, 
And just having a better understanding of like what processes need to be made to prevent ignitions and what things need to happen in order to really communicate that effectively, just communicate like that level of risk that you're at, even if it's only for a day or whatever, that really acute risk where you have these big wind events or whatever it might be. And it was a bit of what you were speaking to, I think, is just having those systems in place and being a little more, I don't know, a little more nuanced with the way that we communicate risk. Yeah. And I do think that researchers, scientists, folks who are working in science agencies, we're not being asked sometimes to make those difficult operational decisions. And so, of course, humans are not perfect and sometimes the right decisions aren't made, but sometimes the right decisions are made. And it's just that it's the least bad decision. Yeah. Right. This is the least worst decision we can make. Yeah. You know, I've talked some to the insurance industry and they always say, well, you know, we want data like we have for hurricanes. That's what we want for fire. We want all this data for hurricanes. We know three weeks out, hurricane is forming, you know, off the coast of West Africa and we can prepare. Talk about like, just throw a penny in a wishing well, why don't you? Like, that's (laughs) not going to happen because of the nature of fire. But their point is very interesting in that in emergency management and the science around emergency management for hurricanes and managing population risk around hurricanes is decades older than fires. And, and it's because, again, we've had this kind of decentralized approach to managing fire risk and how to really go at wildland firefighting and wildfire risk. But I think one thing that the fire community at large and that I hope the public is starting to learn is that just like in hurricanes, if you evacuate a city for a hurricane, people will die. And if you do not evacuate a city for a hurricane, people will die. And it's really about making the best decision for the most folks, but also making decisions and having essentially fail-safe infrastructure set up, backups set up, so that those of us who are the most prone to you know, negative health impacts if we lose power or to smoke are still taken care of. You know, in California, as you know, they shut off the power during certain, you know, wind events or high fire risks. And it is to try to prevent these ignition sparked fires. But when you do that, that has health impacts on people, right? People who are on ventilators, those run on power. Those are plugged in, right? People who are on oxygen, that oxygen tank has to stay cool. They need air conditioning for that. You know, not everybody has a generator. And Lord knows not everybody should have a generator, you know, like the amount of diesel exhaust that would cause, but also because generators are hard to operate and you have to own space for them to be outside in a safe place. Like it's very complicated. And if you have little babies, you know, anyone under the age of two is prone to severe health impacts if they're too hot or too cold or there's too much smoke. So it's a really tough time, but it doesn't mean that there aren't community level solutions. And I think to pull it back to what fire science can do is to try to inform communities about their risk and to offer them, right? I always call it, it's like a menu or a portfolio of options. Here are your options. What are you going to do when this happens? And how are you going to take care of the folks who are in most need when this happens? Because you're going to need to do that, right? It is difficult. And this is where, you know, satellites can help us 
prepare that risk and help us start that conversation. But satellites aren't going to make that decision for you, right? And those are the hard conversations and hard choices that all of us who are living anywhere need to make. And anyway, a colleague of mine at NASA joked that maybe I'm not the right spokesperson for this, but there is nowhere on this planet that you can move to where you will not be impacted by fire or smoke unless you want to live on Antarctica. So, right. you know, this is everybody's problem. I hope it is treated with the serious that it needs to be treated, which is that it has to be everybody's solution as well, right? We can't leave out anyone from the solution and working together will be more effective. And that includes open science, open data, sharing the information, sharing the technology. But it also means kind of coming to grips with, like you said, your grandma lived through a time when fires were suppressed and actively fought and does not remember these. But her grandma would, right? So I think it's also maybe understanding that the 20th century global fire suppression was an anomaly, right? And not the usual, not the standard. So we're living through some fire extremes now because climate shifts, but also because basically for, you know, much of the 20th century, fires were suppressed and we're burning off that fire deficit still. We'll get through it, but it's going to take a while. Yeah. And it might result in places burning to a greater extent than we would have expected or which we have context for, which I think brings me to the boreal forest, which is something I wanted to touch on in this conversation is just kind of what was going on in Canada this summer. And, you know, I have seen so much about how boreal forests aren't supposed to burn like this. And it's just like so counter to what I understand about boreal forests. And I'm wondering if you had seen anything over the course of the last few months, if you've seen any sort of common misconceptions or things that you would want to address kind of broadly. Sure. Even though I am a supervisor (laughs) for a branch at NASA, I still do my own research. We always say in this branch, even the branch chief does science. So I still do wildfire science research. And actually, I'll be in Finland by the end of the week in order to do some of this Arctic and boreal fire research. So I serve as a U.S. representative. I do not represent the agency, but rather just as a fire scientist to the Arctic Council and the Arctic Council working groups. And so one of the working groups that I'm a part of, Arctic Monitoring Assessment Program, we have kind of like another subcommittee (laughs) where we spent basically all of lockdown. So the years of 2020 and 2021, doing a semi-systematic review of almost 300 peer-reviewed published articles across the eight countries that at that time made up the Arctic Council. So that included Russia at the time. Russia is not participating right now because Norway has the chairship. But we found that if you looked at this published literature across the U.S., Canada, Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Finland, Denmark and Greenland and Russia, that there's just an overall fire increase across the Pan-Arctic and across the Pan-Boreal. And in fact, this is well documented and it just creates a fire regime, right? So what we think the wildfire landscape will look like by mid to late century. So you know, 25 years from now to 75 years from now will be just a complete increase across the Pan-Arctic and across the Pan-Boreal. So I do want to say that I've heard several times this summer, well, Quebec has never burned. And that's not quite true. So actually, in 2003, in the spring of 2003, fires in May in Quebec sent huge smoke clouds down to the East Coast. 
so much so that Washington, D.C. had a smoke event. And actually, at the time, NASA had the MODIS science team. So the MODIS satellite, which we now depend on, right, but will soon be sunsetting as it's come to the end of its engineering lifespan. This was one of the prime examples of how this new daily Earth observation satellite could track things like this, these huge fire events sending smoke. That was 20 years ago, right? Well, people forget and I think that's generally why when folks ask me, like, why did you become a scientist? And basically it's that people forget, but this lives on in our data and it lives on in the knowledge and in the literature. And of course, it does live on in traditional ecological knowledge as well. But just in the last 20 years, we had spring fires in Quebec that sent smoke events. So I think that that's a misconception, right? That Eastern Canada does not, cannot burn. But to be quite frank, though, because I do have several Canadian colleagues that I work with, this is an extreme fire year in Canada. And it's essentially, if you think about it, a mirror image to the 2020 extreme fire year that was experienced in Siberia. And these are exactly the types of fire seasons that when we did this review paper and analysis for the Arctic Council working group that was predicted to happen. But it was predicted to happen in 30 years and not now. And I think it's important to understand that, you know, in 2017, there was a wildfire in Greenland that was 70 kilometers from the ice sheet. In 2019, there was another wildfire in Greenland. These types of ground and likely peat fires, but there's not enough geological and soil data to really classify that in Greenland, were not predicted to occur to the middle of the century. And so essentially what we're finding is that some of our predictive models were probably too conservative and they didn't understand, right, the impact that climate change would really have on our systems and would increase wildfire risk. I think also, you know, a colleague of mine, the Gwich'in Council International, Edward Alexander, for many years, he's been working as an Indigenous permanent participant to get the Arctic Council working groups really talking about fire response and fire risk because he works more from emergency management response and I work from the fire science response. And we're kind of like natural colleagues in that we both have the same message, but we're coming at it from different ways that this fire risk is increasing. And just because it didn't happen in 1980 doesn't mean that it can't happen now. In 2020, there were pyrocumulus clouds along the Arctic Ocean's shore in Siberia and Far East Russia. This year, there are pyrocumulus clouds in the Northwest Territories near the Arctic Ocean, right? This is just now the nature of the Arctic and boreal fire regimes. I think also, you know, folks don't understand, I hope that the general public understands how hard it is to evacuate a whole community. Like, Yellowknife is not close to Edmonton. First off, Yellowknife's in a different, you know, it's in the Northwest Territories, Edmonton's in Alberta, different provinces, territories. But you're talking like if you had to drive from Maine, right, to the Georgia-Florida border. That's really the distance. That's long, right? And just to evacuate to get to a large area. So that's kind of the risk that we're going to be facing in many of our northern communities, you know, not just in North America. I mean, even in, in the Nordic countries, there is a concern that, that maybe they need to invest more in wildfire monitoring and wildfire fighting. But also, they're really focusing a lot on public education and communication to try to reduce human-caused ignitions, right? Because we cannot control the lightning. 
And sometimes we're not really going to be able to control the vegetation, the fuels, right? We can, of course, improve that, but we can't control it. But we can reduce human-caused emissions. I try to stay off social media these days because I'm busy, but also just to not engage negativity sometimes. But, you know, I have gone on record saying that I just wish that a lot of the more I guess, popular culture, podcasts, and TV shows would actually talk to the folks who live in the Arctic and Boreal and the fire scientists working there because some of this was, it was almost too dramatic. It was like too much like crisis agents, you know, when in fact, we know that this is going to happen. We've been talking about this for a long time and there are people working globally (laughs) trying to get governments right, to face this problem. And perhaps that's, you know, the Arctic Council is not as well known as some of these supranational, you know, organizations. But, you know, literally the reports from the Arctic Council, they go straight to, in the U.S., the Secretary of State. So it goes right up to the very top of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or State Department. You know, these are folks who are making these decisions and are working on treaties, who are making sure that when we do exchanges of wildland firefighters across borders, that that is happening. And that, you know, that's really important that that type of work continue just as we try to do these, you know, very close community level work. Anyway, this is me being a little exasperated. But what I hope folks understand is that the boreal is a fire adapted ecosystem and parts of the Arctic is too. But as we approach these risks, you know, I think one of the things that concerns me is that as we get fires farther and farther north up into the Arctic, that we're just going to copy and paste how we do wildland firefighting in the boreal systems to these extremely more fragile Arctic ecosystems where the wildland firefighting techniques themselves could lead to permafrost degradation and then further melt and honestly, making landscapes then more fire prone. So it'd be the opposite of a boreal fire, where if a fire comes through, you've now limited the fire activity for at least five to 10 years. You know, people used to say 20, but we think that's reducing in time. And in the Arctic, it may be more like the rainforest, where every time you bring in a fire, you're just drying out the landscape, which means the next year, that area is more likely to burn again. So we need to be listening you know, to the people who live in the Arctic, the indigenous communities, the rural communities, and working with them to come up with a climate resilient firefighting approach, because otherwise we're going to cause more damage than we are going to do good. And we need the Arctic in order to cool the planet. (laughs) It's a very important region. All right. Clearly, I'm very passionate about this, but it's because it is often a region that's overlooked, it's seen as like uncontrollable. But there are many talented and brilliant people working in Canada and Alaska, across the Nordics. We're trying to solve these issues. And I hope folks talk to them more so that their voices are heard instead of, I would say, just concern. I know it's concerning, but you know, boreal forests have always burned. They will burn. What we need to do is make sure we don't have extreme fire seasons and we're not hurting the landscape, the animals, the people, the communities, the infrastructure. But eliminating all fire is never the answer. These are landscapes where fire is common and sometimes is needed, right? But extreme fires are never needed in any landscape. And that's what we have to prevent. Thank you so much. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Anything you want to add? 
I will just say that, you know, NASA across all NASA centers and at NASA headquarters is really trying hard to be both an innovative but active partner for advancing wildland fire and prescribed fire, you know, technology, science and observations. And that we take very seriously the role of partners and stakeholders and local communities and helping drive that. And we also know that sharing our science, our technology and our data sources are really important for advancing open and public facing science. And we are as an agency and at NASA Ames as a center committed to open science so that whatever we are doing is advancing science, understanding and innovation globally, right? So for our country and for the planet. And so it's nice to be able to work on such a important topic because wildfires will keep impacting us, but also to be there at that intersection and to know that, you know, NASA is one of those places that wants to help communities learn to thrive with fire. And that's where I hope we'll end up because whether I'm in California or I'm in Kentucky, I'm going to be in a fire, fire prone and fire adapted landscape. And, you know, both are beautiful and both are worth saving. And that's what we've got to aim for. So thank you very much for inviting me. It was nice talking to you about all things fire. Ah, oh, that's so fun. I feel like we could yeah. talk for another hour, <laughs> but thanks, Jessica. Thanks. Have a great day, guys. All right, that is the end of today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I hope you learned something. A huge thanks to everybody for listening as always. As I usually do at the end of each episode, I would like to encourage you to share this with somebody who you think might like it. Maybe give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you feel so inclined. And if you are really feeling supportive, we do have a Patreon that you can support by going to the link in this episode's show notes. We have tiers ranging from $3 a month to $20 a month. And all of that funding goes towards supporting projects like our call for pitches to support grassroots storytelling from communities that have been impacted by wildfires, as well as the ongoing editing and production and et cetera costs of this podcast. So if you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you could support us in one of those ways, whether it's sharing or subscribing or reviewing or supporting us financially. So let's wrap things up here. Thanks as always for listening and we will catch you on the next episode.